This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. to you wherever you may be. Welcome to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM, mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's more than radio, it's community radio. KOPN 89.5, serving Columbia, Lake Ozark, Wooldridge, New Franklin, New Haven, Kingdom City, Roachport, 
Boonville and lots of other areas around mid-Missouri. And uh, thanks for listening. It's Mike Hagan, your host every Sunday morning from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. on Radio Orbit. And uh, uh, here we are again. It's Sunday morning, the 19th of December. And I've got a fun show lined up for you tonight. Um, kind of a kind of a seat of my pants show. I've got some ideas to do, uh, some things, uh, a couple things I want to talk about. Uh, and if I get them done uh, quick enough, uh, I'm going to get Kent Stedman on the line with me to talk about some of them because he uh, uh, has some uh, direct real life experience into some of the things that I'm going to be talking about tonight, namely human evolution and uh, nature and the psychedelic experience and the internet, maybe a little bit about language, and uh, anyway, some uh, some important stuff and some uh, really interesting conversational stuff we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, let's see, before we, uh, before we get to that, though, I want to uh, thank everybody for all the nice emails that I got last week about the show that we did with Scott Stevens and, uh, uh, and Kent on weather manipulation. It was a pretty interesting show, and... Uh, it sure was uh, cool to have an actual meteorologist, a TV weatherman on the air, talking to us and telling us about uh, uh, what he thinks is happening up there in the skies. Uh, some really strange things for sure. So uh, so anyway, uh, thanks for that. And uh, everybody else who uh, listens over the web, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate that as well. And keep the emails coming. And uh, I appreciate all of them. I read them all. And if, even if I don't respond, uh, I try to. I actually try to respond to all of them. And... Um, if I don't, uh, I apologize, but send me whatever you like, questions, comments, concerns, anything you might, uh, uh, might want to send me. So I'd be glad to read it, and I'd be glad to respond to you, okay? Uh, let's see, what else do we have going on? You know, um, I'm all excited tonight, actually, because I have um, I got a bunch of new, well, new old music. It's um, when I was, my dad, my father turned 70 years old in July of this last year. And we had a big birthday party for him up in uh, up in Rockford, Illinois, actually, is where my hometown is. So anyway, I was up there in Rockford, Illinois. We had a big family thing, and all kinds of friends showed up for my dad's 70th birthday party. Well, I have, um, I have some PA equipment and microphones and that sort of stuff. I play a little music on the side. So I brought my PA and a bunch of CDs and my guitar and a bunch of stuff up there to, uh, to the party. And unfortunately, one night uh, while we were up there, uh, our car got broken into, and my PA system and a bunch of my favorite CDs and a whole bunch of music and stuff got stolen from me, so I was totally bummed. Um, however, in the last week or so, I replaced a whole bunch of those CDs that I had lost, and I'm all excited about it because I'm going to play some of, those, uh, uh, some of that stuff tonight. Uh, and I hope you like it because that's what's coming because I'm so excited to hear the stuff that I haven't heard for a while. So anyway, we'll be playing some fun music tonight and some good stuff uh, that uh, fits in with the program real well, hopefully. And, um, well, uh, just uh, that's about it. little change of pace tonight. Like I said, no scheduled guests. Might get, might get Kent on the phone here a little bit later because, um, I, like I said, I want to talk to him a little bit about some things that he has some experience in. But, uh, some, but either way, this will, it'll be a fun show, I think. So... We'll do space weather uh, in a minute, um, and before that, uh, let me talk a little bit about some upcoming guests. We have, uh, I'm very excited about Dr. Paul Laviolette. I've mentioned him once or twice in the past. Dr. Laviolette uh, is a, uh, a Ph.D. astrophysicist uh, who has delved in lots of different areas of endeavor over his career, and he's a real interesting fellow, and we're going to be talking to him um, 
in a couple weeks. I'm actually going to air that after the first of the year. Uh, I have an interview, a live interview that we're doing on January 30th uh, with a gentleman named Nick Cook, who was the former uh, aerospace editor at Jane's Defense Weekly for 10 years. And uh, he lives in London or outside of London, and we're going to be doing that show live on the 30th of January. So the stuff that we're going to be talking to Nick Cook about is... uh, uh, he wrote a book called The Hunt for Zero Point, Inside the Classified World of Anti-Gravity Technology. And uh, he's a real insider himself, and we're going to be talking to him about that book and about uh, the anti-gravity uh, technology that may or may not be a reality on this planet right now. But anyway, we're going to talk with Nick live about that uh, yeah, from from London. And I think the week before that, on the, on the 23rd of January, is when I'll air the Dr. Paul Laviolette interview because uh, that interview will uh, meld and gel nicely with uh, with the following week's interview with Nick Cook. So that's coming up. We've got uh, Sean Montgomery. I've uh, I've mentioned a couple times Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, uh, incredible evolutionary biologist and uh, cutting edge researcher into things like morphic resonance and uh, morphic field theory and these sorts of things. Uh, Richard K. Moore, Michael Heisen, Dr. Michael Heisen, the uh, marine biologist. Uh, you may remember a show we did back in November about dolphins and whales and. We'll be talking to Dr. Heisen again sometime in the future, and uh, well, lots of other, uh, uh, lots of other. I got a lot of, uh, got a lot of hooks in the water. I haven't got anybody else uh, confirmed that I can talk about uh, yet, but I do have some other real interesting ones that I'm working on. So we'll try to keep uh, keep these interesting, exciting guests coming, and hopefully you guys are enjoying it. Uh, with that in mind, um, I mentioned before that you can uh, send me email. Uh, that email address is orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com, orbitradio at AOL.com. You can also check us out on the web at www.radioorbit.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com, just one O in the middle there, uh, radioorbit.com. And uh, the phone number here at the station, 573-874-5676. That's 573-874-TALK or 1-800-895-5676, 1-800-895-TALK. All right, uh, a little bit later, probably top of the hour or so, uh, I meant to give away a T-shirt and an Orbit uh, uh, Archive CD-ROM last week, but... um, I got kind of screwed up on the telephones trying to get both my guests on the air at the same time, so uh, I neglected to give away that T-shirt and CD-ROM, so I'm going to do that tonight. If you don't hear me um, announce it, well, just call, all right, and say I want it, because if I forget uh, first person to call after the top of the hour uh, at 3 o'clock, I can get that, and I'll send it out to you next week, and that number is 573-874-5676, Okay. All right, uh, let's do space weather. What time is it? I want to get an idea on time. I've got a lot of things I want to do in this first hour. Quarter after, just about. Okay, space weather, aurora watch. Yeah, second day in a row, uh, the Earth is passing through a pretty high-speed solar wind stream. The uh, solar wind actually right now, at least earlier this afternoon when I was checking up on it, was about 560 kilometers per second, which is... uh, uh, not as high as I've seen it in the past, but certainly pretty high. Usually hovers around 300, 350, something like that. So, uh, so um, you may get some real nice auroras up there in the next in the uh, Alaska and Canadian upper latitudes over the next uh, night and a half, next or the next two nights or so, two or three nights. 
And uh, so if you're up there and you hear, if you happen to hear this program tomorrow on the web, uh, you can check out the Aurora Borealis up there in the northern latitude. Some beautiful photos, too. If you go down to uh, spaceweather.com, they got some pretty cool uh, Aurora Borealis photographs up there at the website. So um, a couple of other interesting things happening up there in the air, uh, in the sky above our heads. You know, we always talk about the sun and asteroids and these sorts of things. Uh, there was a, a big giant solar prominence on the 17th just a couple of days ago uh, that uh, kind of jumped out off the uh, sun's eastern limb. And uh, prominences, uh, for those who don't know, they're, they're sort of, um, they're not exactly like a solar flare or a coronal mass ejection, although they are sometimes uh, related to those events. Prominences are sort of ribbons of gas um, that's rel- relatively speaking cooler than the gas that's uh, that's on the surface of the sun. So it it uh, is sort of he- uh, held above the surface of the sun by these magnetic fields, and um, they make uh, pretty interesting artwork sometimes. And there was a really interesting, cool solar prominence just a couple of days ago. And again, if you'd like to see any of that stuff, uh, take a drive over to cyberspaceorbit.com. Kent always has links up over to the. Uh, solar websites, or you can go to spaceweather.com or spacedaily or space.com. There's lots of people that are covering this stuff and some pretty interesting stuff uh, just uh, snooping around on those websites. So anyway, pretty cool stuff happening up there on the sun. Nothing dangerous. Uh, I haven't had any big uh, flares in the last couple weeks or so. And uh, we just take it day by day with the sun. Speaking of taking it day by day, as you remember, uh, last week we were talking about near-Earth asteroids and uh, these space rocks that fly by our planet and sometimes come very close and sometimes actually hit the planet. And there is a group of astronomers and an organization that watches these things and tries to keep their eye on the ones at least that we know about. And I usually uh, give an update on those uh, uh, as they're going to be passing our planet in the near future. Now, there's one that's coming up uh, on December 24th. They're actually calling it the Christmas Comet, even though it's not really a comet. Uh, but... Uh, it is, uh, and they have these sort of interesting designations, and they're very, uh, uh, very uh, antiseptic sounding. But I'll tell you what it is anyway. It's a 2004 VW14. That's how they've assigned uh, this thing uh, a designation. Uh, in any case, uh, that will be coming about five lunar distances away from the Earth, which is about a hundred. Well, about 1.25 million miles, actually. The moon and the Earth are about 250,000 miles from one another, and they call a lunar distance. Uh, that uh, exact measurement is called one lunar distance. So they measure the, the, uh, the nearness or the farness of these asteroids and comets as they approach our planet in terms of uh, lunar distances, uh, which are called LDs, it's uh, abbreviation LD, and they also talk about uh, what they call astronomical units. Now, an astronomical unit is uh, the distance uh, between the Earth and the Sun, which is about 93 million miles, which is quite a bit further, obviously. So, anyway, this rock is going to be passing by us on the 24th of December and going to be within about 1.25 million miles of, uh, of planet Earth. Pretty close call, actually, uh, out there in space uh, in space distances. But the interesting thing is uh, last week I was telling you that the ones that we don't know about are the ones that are more interesting. And on the 17th, just a couple days ago, we had a real close approach of an asteroid uh, that has since been uh, designated 2004 
XB45, but that particular rock was one that we didn't know about, and it came very, very close. It came inside of one lunar distance from the Earth. That means it's inside the orbit of the moon, and that, my friends, is very close. And this happened on the 17th of December. It actually passed, a, uh, it got, at least what we were told was that the closest it got was about uh, a point eight lunar distances, which is about 200,000 miles. And again, in cosmic terms, this is just a very, very, a pretty close call. And uh, the, uh, the size of this rock was estimated to be at about 25 meters. But again, um, I really don't know how... Uh, how verifiable or valid that uh, that information is, but I certainly know that uh, uh, the the uh, the people that report these things and cover them uh, definitely made a point that it did fly by, regardless of how big it was. So we had a real close encounter just a couple of days ago, and uh, like I said before, this is one that we had no idea was even out there. So there really is no way of knowing how many of uh, these near-Earth asteroids or Earth-crossing asteroids that exist out there, and they just buzz us every once in a while, and uh, quite frankly, the ones that we know about are nothing really to care about. If we know about them, big deal. Uh, we know they're not going to hit us. The ones, that, uh, the ones that we don't know about are the ones that, have, uh, that sometimes cause a little bit of concern, but as I've said in the past, what are you going to do? So uh, anyway, just wanted to let you know that that happened, and uh, it's always funny when it happens because it always a couple days afterwards they say, "Wow, the Earth just had a close call," but it's always in the past tense. So that happened. Okay, uh, what else? Uh, the chief, uh, the head of NASA, his name was Sean O'Keefe. He um, offered his resignation on the 16th, and it was sort of uh, a quick thing. It wasn't really. Some people speculated that he was going to be leaving the agency. Uh, because of uh, the controversy with the Hubble telescope, uh, Mr. O'Keefe uh, was basically uh, in agreement with taking the Hubble telescope out of commission, and that caused a big stir in the scientific community and in uh, a lot of the, the uh, uh, just the uh, average old Joe Q public, uh, uh, normal, average everyday people a lot of people actually were really upset that they were going to try to shut Hubble down I was one of those people and uh, I'm really pleased that that, that looks like that's not going to happen now but uh, Sean O'Keefe was in the middle of that and he um, never really recovered from the comments he made about shutting down Hubble and I think that probably has something to do with why he left but um, a, a, a predecessor or, or actually a um, uh, his successor has not been named so I don't know. Why don't you all send him an email and tell him that uh, they should hire Mike Hagan uh, to be the new head of NASA. And you have my word here, right here on Radio Orbit, uh, speaking in public, that I will change that agency. Okay? All right. Uh, so we had a flyby with a close asteroid. We got guys bailing out of NASA. Uh, we have all kinds of things happening. So uh, that's what's happening in solar, solar weather, uh, space weather. And... I will play a little bit of music here, and we'll get back in just a minute. Uh, speaking of the sun, this is Soundgarden with Black Hole Sun from Super Unknown. Back in a minute, Radio Orbit, KOPN. Face like the snake in 
Soundgarden, Black Hole Sun from Super Unknown. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. And it's just about 2.30 in the a.m. on Sunday morning, the 19th of December, just about five or six days away from the uh, celebration of Christmas. If you participate in that, Merry Christmas to you. Coming up, I won't be here next week, actually. I'm going to have uh, my friend Casey sitting in, taking care of the show for me. First time he's done it, and I'm looking forward to it. He's going to do a great job, and he's a totally cool guy doing a show of his own on Wednesday nights from uh, 10 o'clock until midnight, playing blues in the night, I think is what Casey calls his show, at least for now. And uh, anyway, I'm really uh, glad that he's going to get involved. Real cool guy and interested in some of the stuff that we talk about on this program, so he'll be a, he'll be a great guest host, I'm sure. So you can expect Casey next week. Uh, I'm not sure what he'll do exactly, but I'll, I will probably have an interview lined up, uh, maybe something on tape, but we'll let him uh, pretty much decide that, okay? All right, well, look, um, for the show tonight, what I want to do, I've been thinking a lot about evolution and um, some of the things related to it, and I've been going back over some of the ide- ideas and theories and stories uh, in the past that I've come across some of which are actually quite astounding, one of which I'm going to talk about tonight, actually. And it was uh, originally proposed um, very eloquently by Terence McKenna in a book that he wrote. uh, I'm not sure exactly when it was written, but it was called Food of the Gods. And uh, Food of the Gods is an incredible book, and a lot of what I'm going to be talking about tonight is uh, uh, gleaned from that particular publication. And... Uh, I've I've been I've been going back over it again, and I you know sometimes when you read things more than once, you get it uh, you get you get a different meaning or more meaning or something different out of it the second, third, fourth time you read it. And anyway, that's what happened with this, and um, I guess I just wasn't uh, quite prepared for it when I originally had read it, but it really struck me this time, and I'm going to talk about some of that stuff tonight. So, uh, you know, we've had we've had hobbits uh, in the news, uh, this whole idea of this new or old version of human being that was found on the uh, island uh, Florentius up there by Java. And uh, lots of controversy over, over over those people and who they were, who they are even. There are some people that say that they still exist. Um, there have been lots of archaeological and paleontological conundrums that have raised their head in the last couple of years. And there's another one right here, actually, that I think I'll read to you real fast before um, before we talk about it. this stuff. Sort of sets it up again, but there is a story just in the uh, just in the last couple of days here from the New York Times that uh, the title of the story says "Stocky Monkey in Himalayas Becomes Newest Primate Species." So they're still discovering new or old species of animals all the time, including animals that are very closely rela- uh, related to us and to our ancestors. Uh, in this particular case, uh, it is a little monkey that's called a macaca. They have actually named it the macaca munzala, uh, or the uranakal macaque. A uh, macaque is like a, little, a smaller monkey, um, um, more of a descendant like of the squirrel monkey, some of the real older monkeys that, are on, that were on the planet and still are. But anyway, I'll read a little bit to you, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. So... It says, uh, scientists from India working in the Himalayas have discovered a new species of monkey, a stocky, short-tailed, brown-haired creature they have named Macaca Munzala. 
Though new species of insects and other tiny creatures turn up frequently, discoveries of primate species unknown to science are far more unusual. The last macaque monkey species to be identified, the Indonesian pagai macaque, was discovered in 1903, according to the Wildlife Conservation Society, the parent organization of the Bronx Zoo in New York. The society was a supporter of the expeditions this year and last in which these new monkeys were, uh, were observed. Scientists for the society, the Nature Conservation Foundation, and other organizations traveled to the mountainous Indian state of Arunakal Pradesh, which borders Tibet and Myanmar, to inventory the region's wildlife. They found 14 troops, or bands of monkeys as they're called, uh, most with 10 or fewer animals. The monkeys differ from other macaques in that they have dark hair on their heads and uh, they have distinct, distinctive facial markings and in particular relatively short length of their tail. The Wildlife Conservation Society says it is, no, it is not known how many of the monkeys there are or whether they are threatened. The researchers who described their discovery in a paper to be published in the International Journal of Primatology said the monkeys sometimes lived close to villages but were wary of people. In undisturbed forest areas, the researchers wrote, they seemed extremely shy, rapidly disappearing through the undergrowth as soon as they sensed human presence. Though the monkeys are new to science, people in the area are quite familiar with them. They call them Munzala, or deep forest monkeys, the Wildlife Society said. In recent years, other expeditions to this area have turned up several species not known to exist in India. Dr. Colleen McCann, curator of the primates at the Bronx Zoo, said these discoveries suggested that despite the destructive activities of people, there were still tiny pockets of habitat that have yet to be discovered. Oh, that's a nice way to end the story. Well, hopefully they're not discovered because every time they get discovered, they usually get destroyed. Uh, but in any case, an interesting story and just uh, um, another one of these things. Uh, we, we are always discovering new species of animals and plants, just as there are animals and plants that are disappearing off the face of the earth. Uh, and that may be happening uh, at an accelerated rate, and there are... Certainly some scientists that say that that is the case and they're concerned about the uh, extinction rates that are happening in both the plant world, the vegetable world, and the animal world. But there are also lots of species that are popping up. And who knows, uh, you know, some of these are evolving now. Uh, not these monkeys, but, uh, you know, when you find a bacteria at the bottom of the ocean that you've never found before, it's very possible that it's not that old. And uh, there are all kinds of interesting things that are happening and in lots of different areas. And uh, I just like to read these stories to show you that we still, right here on our own planet, uh, have a lot of things to learn and a lot of things that are changing all the time. In fact, we always will have a lot to learn because these, these rules and these, uh, these things that we think are set in stone, uh, they just aren't. And uh, so there's always lots to learn, and we'll never know it all. And here's just another example of that, okay? And that's a, uh, a pretty good setup for, um, for this little talk that I want to have with you all um, in a few minutes here, talking about evolution and uh, what really happened in the past with the human species and, you know, what were very different than every other animal on this planet, something fundamentally different happened. Uh, when our species broke from sort of the primate animal kingdom and uh, there was a separation of sorts. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit tonight. Before, um, before we do that, 
I think we'll play one more song real fast, and uh, I'll see if I can get Kent on the air, and he can listen in and add what he'd like. Um, but I'll be back in just a couple minutes, and uh, think about um, what we know about our ancestors, because we're going to talk a lot about that in the next, uh, next couple hours, and I'm sure we'll get into lots of other things, but at first I want to lay a background of something that I found over the last few days and uh, uh, revisited it and found it to be really... Uh, interesting and profound, I think. So, all right, back in a minute. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, and you're also listening to Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds.
Seeds from songs in the key of X. All right, this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. And uh, before the break, there I was talking about the book Food of the Gods that Terence McKenna wrote uh, a number of years ago. And we read a little story about those new monkeys that they found in India. And I've got evolution on my mind. I've got evolution on my mind. And I want to start, um, well, not all the way back, but I want to start about three million years ago. And this is, uh, um, well, just bear with me here, okay? Sometime in the last three million years, uh, about a million or a million and a half years ago, sometime around that time, the, the, the human brain size doubled. And this has been called the most explosive burst of development in an organ of a higher animal in the entire history of the evolutionary record. This is what orthodox science tells us. This is what evolutionary biologists have told us about this um, this extreme uh, burst of growth over a relatively speaking, geologically speaking, and uh, evolutionarily speaking in a very short period of time. And this happened to our species. Uh, sometime in the last three million years, okay? Now, orthodox science also doesn't have a clue as to why that happened. It's the source of a lot of debate, and it is sort of the basis for the idea that we've all heard of over the years that they called the missing link. Um, the, 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 so the, the, human, the human story itself is the most frustrating to these scientists, it's it's the it's the fly in the ointment, so to speak. 
You see, evolutionary bio- biologists have they've been very successful in describing how higher plants have arisen from less complex plants and how higher animals have emerged from lower forms, but it has no answer as to what special circumstances arose uh, that would explain the explosion in this brain development that literally led to human consciousness, literally led to... Uh, see, the part of the brain that was developing then, you know, is is the the neocortex and the frontal lobe. So these are the areas of uh, of higher thought. But in any case, uh, for the evolutionary biologist, it's, it's one thing to say that, you know, this salmon evolved from an earlier form of this salmon. But it's a little bit different to say that creatures that build things like space stations and New York City evolved directly from animals that stick blades of grass in holes to catch ants. So what was the catalyst? Why did this happen? What, what brought on this, this burst of, of, of brain growth uh, in the human species? What was the trigger that set it off? This incredible advancement that literally led to humans as we know ourselves today. You know, the human being... Uh, physiologically, physically really hasn't changed much over the last 50 to 100,000 years. Those people back then were the same as the guy riding the bus next to you. But their culture uh, and their environment was quite a bit different, certainly. But physically, physiologically, and including their brain size, uh, they were creatures very much like yourself. So, anyway, this... It, I, I don't want to underestimate what happened here because it literally took us from the animal realm into what we call human beings, and there was sort of a, there was a major break there, and and it 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 literally pulled the human soul out of heaven and and placed it on the shoulders of a monkey is basically what happened. So so I want to talk about an idea uh, that I think is a wonderful explanation of what happened and it, and like I said earlier it's based on some of the uh, most of the work originally done by Terence McKenna uh, in his book Food of the Gods. Uh, and some other people have taken off on that theme since then but uh, I want to introduce that uh, particular subject uh, to to my listeners tonight so so we're going to talk about that okay so during this time two or three million years ago um our ancestors they were arboreal primates they're monkeys that lived under the canopy in the rainforest in the heart of africa okay this is the cradle of humankind the cradle of our species they were fruit eating animals almost exclusively uh, ate fruit and they had a very stable organized society in a jungle environment they didn't move and uh, at about the same time uh, two or three million years ago the climate began to change though and it began to get drier um, in the rainforest in the uh, um, the equatorial rainforest of Africa it began to get drier and the and the rainforest began to recede and it was replaced by grasslands uh, that uh, uh, we came to know as the African Velt. Um, so what happened was at this time it placed an extraordinary amount of uh, evolutionary pressure on our ancestors. They had to now um, begin to contemplate a new environment, the the grasslands. Uh, because of this new environment, they had to they had to learn a new means of locomotion instead of running around on on their back legs with their front 
paws hanging down, sort of helping them, running on four legs. They 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 moved fully to bipedalism. Uh, they had new predators to worry about, big cats that roamed the the grasslands that would love to munch on one of those monkeys, and so they had a tremendous amount of pressure that was put on them uh, because of these environmental changes that were taking place. Uh, they had new vision requirements. This is something that's very important. They had new vision requirements. In the, in the, in the jungle, under the canopy, the vision requirements are, are, are quite different than those required on the open plain. Uh, for example, binocular vision, uh, having the ability to see both close to you and far away from you at the same time uh, is something that developed during this period and, and, and is coincidental with the uh, uh, with this explosion in brain growth that we're talking about but um, so they had to learn how to see differently you know inside the inside the canopy you didn't have to see very far the furthest you saw was 20 30 feet or something and there was nothing above you no sky no never rarely saw the sun you know uh, never saw the moon the stars so all of these things were changing but the major issue the major issue was food as the rainforest was receding the fruits that our ancestors ate were disappearing so during this time uh, remember we had this amazing burst of growth in the human brain going on right now uh, now in in brain evolution, the neocortex, as I said earlier, is the higher center of the human brain. This is, this is where independent thought and creativity and music and abstract thought and problem-solving, reason, all of this stuff happens in the frontal lobes and in the neocortex of the brain, which is the most recent evolutionary advancement of our brain. This is what was happening in uh, this time period that we're talking about. So... Um, now, evolution, let's talk a little bit about evolution. Evolution is explained by two factors which happen simultaneously. The first one is called random genetic mutation. Uh, and random genetic mutation is combined with uh, what we call natural selection. Uh, the, the, the concept of, of the only the strong survive sort of idea. Okay, so, uh, so random ge genetic mutation combined with natural selection... Uh, is what we've been told leads to evolution. Uh, now, orthodox science, sciences um, have said regarding genetic mutation, uh, they have neglected one of the obvious ones, and they primarily claim that um, mutagenic changes, genetic changes um, in all species have been brought on primarily by cosmic influences. Uh, solar radiation, cosmic rays, this sort of thing. But one of the things that Terence points out, and that I'll point out tonight, the obvious one that they move is the influence of foods, the influence of diet. You see, plants uh, have been evolving on this planet for millions and millions of years as well, and plants are basically little chemical experiments, little chemistry experiments. All these plants... Uh, create inside their uh, inside their bodies all kinds of extravagant and and uh, exotic chemical compounds, all kinds of different things. This is this is why fully 75% of all of our drugs 
uh, both le legal and illegal, uh, still come from plants. And that's why the pharmaceutical companies are shaking down shamans, trying to find out you know, how they solve some of these problems uh, using the plants uh, in their environment. But that's a whole other story. But in any case, these plants uh, ingested into a body can have an effect on the body. Now, when you have a species that's been under a tremendous amount of pressure that used to eat only fruits in the forest and is now forced out onto the grasslands, now becomes an omnivore slowly becomes an omnivore has to this is this is the transition from the forest to the hunter-gatherer this is what happened and now these guys have to run around and uh, they're they're willing to eat meat now because there's game there's cattle types of animals that are evolving as well on this grassland on the plain and um, and there's all of these different plants. Now, these guys were under tremendous amount of evolutionary pressure, like I said before. And our ancestors were, were, were living in this major shift, right? Going from this stable, non-moving, arboreal fruit-eating state to a nomadic, omnivore state that is described as the hunter-gatherer, right? Now, <coughs> pardon me. This is where it gets interesting. Um, this is when they found the mushroom. And it was a uh, relative of what we now call the Strephoria cubensis, a particular strain of mushroom that was well-suited to the grasslands of, uh, of Africa at the time. And it, uh, this mushroom contained the psychoactive compound called psilocybin. And the mushrooms grew in the dung of animals that were also evolving on the plain, these uh, uh, these cattle type animals that were uh, that were evolving on the plain as well, the, the the mushrooms thrived in the feces in the dung of that animal. So so the mushroom shows up, and things get interesting. Psilocybin, in small doses, increases visual acuity. It increases edge detection. It's, it's the equivalent of a chemically induced pair of binoculars. So it's not hard to see that the individuals that ate the mushrooms and had the psilocybin enter into their system, that increasing the visual acuity for an animal... Uh, that was now making this transition, um, as we talked about, the visual transition was a major one that they had to make. Uh, it, it follows pretty easily. You don't have to be uh, the head of NASA to realize that the animals that had the advantage of this increased visual accuracy and, and, uh, uh, and acuity, that those animals would probably thrive or be more likely to survive in the environment than the animals that did not let those substances enter into their system. The, uh, uh, those who ate the mushrooms simply could see better. They, they also had a new source of food. So they had a new source of food. It helped them to see better. Uh, it gave them a, an advantage against the predators that were now stalking them on the plane. 
and uh, uh, it gave them a better opportunity to get their prey. So it doesn't. Uh, so it follows that this stuff makes sense. Uh, in in higher doses, psilocybin uh, brings on what the medical people call arousal, and this is sort of a general state of heightened awareness. Um, agitation, maybe a little bit of nervousness, but also in a in a sexually active species, a highly sexual species like our own, it leads to erection in the male, and then uh, you know, in subsequent sexual activity. So, both of these factors would lead to a higher probability of survival. You have better vision, better hunting and survival skills, more offspring, a larger food supply, a, a, a broader food source. So it follows that the part of the population that is not eating these mushrooms would be mitigated out and the psilocybin-eating monkeys would eventually take over. So still at higher levels of, of uh, doses, at higher doses, these so-called hallucinogenic levels, something happens that's called, uh, and, I, and this is something that I think Terence coined, he called boundary dissolution. And anybody who has taken these substances will tell you that, that that's exactly what they do. They, br they, they break down boundaries. They dissolve boundaries. And um, oh, oh, one more thing about uh, arousal. This, this arousal that was brought on by the mushroom was uh, also promoted a, torp uh, a type of orgy. And basically, uh, I mean, and this was an orgy that was sanctioned by society, okay? So basically every so often, probably during the full moon or the new moon, uh, everyone would get together and just jump each other's bones and have a good old time. And um, that's, what, that, that's what they did. Now, when an orgy is incorporated into a society as a social norm, well, then something else that's interesting happens. It eliminates the ability of men to trace paternity. It eliminates the ability of men to trace paternity. So in a culture such as this, there is no concept of my children in the male. There's only the concept of our children, the group's children. And this is a very significant point that needs to be made. So this is what was happening at that time. So uh, one other thing to add that's very important is that all of these monkey ancestors of ours, if you go back throughout the entire phylogeny of the, of the monkey evolution, you'll find that all of their um, societies are organized, all of their social structures are based on what are called male dominance hierarchies. A male dominance hierarchy is a situation when you have an alpha male, uh, the head the big cheese, the, the head honcho, and he um, usually takes the most attractive or most desirable female, usually by brute force, and he then uh, takes his uh, subordinate monkey friends and kind of puts them in charge of the rest of the women, the rest of the females, and um, that's the way that the that the society is, is organized with one male monkey basically on top and running the show from there. And it's usually a, um, uh, uh, a male aggressive type behavior in order to acquire that position of alpha male. So male dominance hierarchies, um, are, they're characterized by things like territory, ownership, you know, uh, 
classism even, these sorts of things, and they are organized around the male ego. Now, the male ego exists by building and maintaining these boundaries. And maybe you see where we're going with this now, okay? So, what happened? Um, the advent of nomadism out of this stable forest community, now out on the plain living as nomads, hunters and gatherers, and due to the psilocybin effect uh, on the on the species, this male dominance hierarchy was eventually eventually mitigated out and off of the top of the hill, so to speak. And the mushroom-eating populations took over. And they had a different culture, a different societal setup. So for about, well, who knows really, but probably for about between 15 and 50,000 years, say, ending just about 10 or 12,000 years ago, our ancestors truly did live in a sort of paradise. Men and women were in balance, in homoestasis, equilibrium with one another and with the earth. Uh, everything was cool. Man walked in the garden, walked in the garden in the evenings with God. That's what they told us, you know. But um, anyway, as we have learned, all things pass. So uh, hold on a second. It's top of the hour. We'll be back in just a minute. Um, I'm going to finish off these thoughts. We've got Kent Stedman on the line now, and he's going to jump in here and uh, and help me out with some of this because I'm just absolutely fascinated by uh, uh, by this uh, by this topic right now, and I really uh, I really want to dig into it a little bit deeper. So, anyway, this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We're talking about human evolution, and we're going to talk about uh, some uh, some really interesting things uh, coming up. Primarily, the psychedelic experience and how that relates. In the meantime, this song is called Garden. It's apropos for the moment, and this is Pearl Jam on Radio Orbit.
Yeah. All right, that'll get you going at 3 o'clock in the morning. Pearl Jam from 10. I told you I found a bunch of my... I lost all these old CDs. They got ripped off of me when I was in Rockford, Illinois in July. And I just replaced a bunch of them, and that was one of them. And I love that CD. And I love that song. It's called Garden from 10, Pearl Jam, Seattle Music. Okay, um, where were we? Right before the break there, we were talking about uh, our our monkey ancestors, and they just found uh, the mushroom, the psilocybin mushroom, and they were uh, they were going through a lot of changes at the time. So we're going to keep talking about that real fast, and don't have a whole lot more to talk about it, um, but I'll finish up, and then we're going to uh, move along and talk to Kent uh, Stedman from CyberspaceOrbit.com, who's on the line, and uh, I'll bring him on in just a few minutes here once we finish up this. Uh, I'm going to kind of put some closure to this story that we're talking about. So, okay. So everything was cool. We had... Uh, we had our ancestors were living in peace, uh, believe it or not, and for quite a long time. And uh, men and women in balance with one another and with the earth, okay? So here's the thing. Uh, the climate continued to change. The grasslands dried up just like the forest did. And where they were living, our ancestors now, became the Sahara Desert. The mushrooms were no longer available. didn't grow anymore. Everything changed again. And our ancestors were literally pushed into the old Middle East, um, and uh, as Terence so eloquently put it so many years ago, they fell into history. We fell. This is the fall. Uh, we fell into history, literally. And uh, perhaps this is the expulsion from the garden, the beginning of the separation, the beginning of the duality. Because at the same time here, agriculture enters the scene. This is uh, when agriculture begins. Nomadism is effectively finished off uh, by the implications of agriculture. You see, if you if you have agriculture, you number one, you have to tend the crops so you don't move around anymore. Uh, you also have now, if you have crops, you also have the opportunity to have surpluses of crops. And if you have a surplus, then you have to defend the surplus. So now you have the reason for standing armies and things of that nature. Now you also have, when you have surpluses, then you have the beginnings of things like classism. You have those that have and those that have not. So these things, which by the way, are all directly related back to what we talked about before, male dominance hierarchy and ego boundaries, all of these things now that began happening with the advent of agriculture began to bring back that old style of culture, that old style of society ordering itself through male dominance hierarchy. This, uh, you know where I'm going with this, all right? So basically what happened all of these things feed into the return of the male ego and the boundaries paternity etc uh, racism sexism all of them return with the return of the old monkey ways and we still are practicing those monkey ways today and even as we explore the solar system, even as we crack the genetic code, even as we do these amazing things, all of it is done from a psychologically damaged position because of this separation from the earth, from nature, which we are hardwired to. We're hardwired to. So 
that's where we stand. And uh, if you fast forward 12,000 years or so to 1967, uh, 1966, the psychedelics are rediscovered, but, but basically developed by the government. Um, uh, that was something that was ironically uh, uh, something that was probably most likely designed for control and to do sort of nefarious things. That's why these things were, at least the synthetic uh, compounds, were developed. They were all developed under the, under the uh, umbrella of intelligence and national security and military. All, all those guys were involved in the development of LSD and all this stuff, and that's a whole other story. In fact, we talked about it with Dr. Colin Ross. Anybody that wants to hear about that, go listen to the interview I did with Colin Ross uh, back in September. And uh, that'll that'll open you up a little bit to what uh, to what these guys were doing with these substances in the 50s and the 60s. But in any case, uh, um, the psychedelics were rediscovered. They were rediscovered, and unfortunately, at that time, there was no real knowledge in any of the literature or anywhere about the connection that goes way back to the story that I just told you and the connections to shamanism and the sane cultures that over millennia have used and incorporated these substances into their cultures and into their societies with great effectiveness. And in 1966 and 1967, and DMT, which is a compound that's found in uh, some of the uh, combinatory drinks that shamans drink in the Amazon, in any case, uh, it's a. <laughs> in another case of irony, DMT is actually found in the human brain, but it's a Schedule One drug. So I guess they made all of us humans illegal. But you're all, all of you out there, you're all holding. Um, so anyway, <laughs> you know, uh, and I, you know, I actually got to bring Kent on the air before I say this because I want to hear his response. Uh, but uh, hey. Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, here's my formal introduction to uh, Kent Stedman from CyberspaceOrbit.com. He's on the air with us often enough that I'm not going to go into it. So, uh, Kent, uh, do we have you here? I'm here. Hey, how are you, man? Hey, Brian. All right, cool. Yeah. Well, well, now, say what you're going to say so I can respond to you. <laughs> well, um, you know, Terrence uh, said one time that, that Tim Leary, uh, Timothy Leary had said that uh, that LSD... It was a drug that is capable of causing psychotic behavior in people who have not taken it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's exactly what happened. A bunch, of people, a bunch of people that didn't take LSD got all freaked out and psychotic and made, uh, made that substance, along with all the natural substances, the, the, uh, the plant, the vision plants, so to speak, made them all illegal, basically w without any scientific basis whatsoever. It was just a, it was just a frenzy of of uh, social uh, d just uh, psychosis I don't know what do you think you were in it you know yeah well yeah I knew a guy that was in that <laughs> <laughs> yeah in another world huh well the substances uh, oh man so many thoughts are spinning around my head and let me see let me tag one and roll with it here all these there are many uh, concoctions you know come from the natural world and some concoctions like psilocybin can be used in different ways like you said 
the berserkers, some of my fur-bearing ancestors used to paint themselves with it, which would turn them blue. Right, right. Paint <laughs> and then blue. they'd slide down these hills and go into battle and lop off heads, you know. So, the, you know, a peaceful, a benign, hippie drug such as psilocybin was also used. <laughs> Depending right. on set, right. setting and the certain kind of mind wash that right. goes along with it, can be used for. Uh, oh, like you say, the MK Alter used it for interrogation, and uh, it can also be used to, I believe, uh, Adolf dose some of his troops with uh, certain kinds of mushrooms. I'm not sure if it was a psilocybin, psilocybin, but uh, he dosed them with amanita, I think. Right, right made them into more acute warriors. And then there's uh, all the other substances. You know, it gets really complex. We're so far away from going out in the field and yanking stuff up and experimenting with it and see what it does. There, there are other psychotropic plants that are uh, uh, not so benign, you know. Right. In the San Joaquin Valley, the there was a spell there where all the teenagers were going out and eating local weed seeds. <laughs> <laughs> Jimson seeds, you know. Right. And they get really psychotic behind that. Had to go to court and defend a young guy once that took some of those and stood off the entire Mariposa Police Department single-handedly all by himself. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then, of course, there's a brood substances. And uh, they're double-edged concoctions, you know. Uh, the wine of the gods, uh, the blood, the flesh and the blood of the gods, you know, the amanita and the and the brood substances. Right, right. They make the. And of course, brood too. substances are double-edged. For some people, they're cool. For some people, they're not. Right, right. I I recall, I believe, a story from Lakota, and I'm really pulling this from distant memory, but, so I could be dead wrong on all this, but a uh, story of uh, some whiskey, you know, laced with snakeheads and all the kind of stuff that used to put in it, or traded to a, a, a community of the Lakota, and uh, at first they thought it had uh, great promise as a spiritual uh, substance, but then one time they went on a big howling drunk amongst the the Lakota and ended up a lot of their cousins and relatives and wives and were all dead because they killed each other, you know. So what we're talking about here is a, a science that uh, has many ramifications and uh, and in the study of the evolution of man here's a question I've always had and I'll toss uh -huh. out and then I'll shut up for a minute but sure. uh, you, you study the cosmos the universe and matter you know and that's sort of the methodology of science that's what they do they study right. the 3D world right the physical world sure the physical world that's their their gig you know I'm not a scientist really so I'm not uh, particularly uh, sworn to that methodology but uh uh but in the study of the cosmos, there's this thing called entropy. 
Sure. And uh, it's always been puzzling to me how everything in the universe, it seems, in the study of science, goes through entropy. In other words, instead of evolving, it poops out. Right, right. The, or de-evolves. Right, the nature favors disorder as, a, as opposed to complexity. But yet, uh, whereas uh, human beings, since Darwin at least, like to uh, uh, ID themselves as, as uh, entities that evolve rather than devolve. I wonder if other critters ID themselves that way. <laughs> I mean, why do human beings identify themselves as as evolving to a higher and higher and higher state when when we, when we look around scientifically and everything's de-evolving right, or right. going as a subject to entropy? Right. Well, now I'm not saying that it's a mistake to, to talk about evolution. But uh, if we do evolve, it doesn't probably happen in terms of our material statement on this world. It happens at some other level uh, in consciousness or something like that. Now, that's that's the taboo. The science won't go there. But But if it does happen... In, in perception and consciousness, then we have to really back off and look at it from a perspective that almost goes beyond life and death. Right. Well, and that is where I think the psychedelic experience comes in. Yeah, we're it, back into that. Right. See, I, see I, I think that, I agree with you, first of all. I, I, I think, I, I realize that, uh, that these substances can be used uh, in any way the, the, the user so chooses. You know, um, I, I don't particularly, you know, think that there's, you know, that we have to go back to living in the jungle and running around painting ourselves blue and jumping around buck naked, you know. I think that, I think that, but I think that the substances can be used in a manner which can help do what you just said, you know, to be able to take a step back and look at it, look at the mind and consciousness outside of the cultural boundaries and limitations that culture wraps around it. In fact, I think that's the main reason why the, why the hallucinogenic uh, compounds are illegal, is you know because they because they do dissolve boundaries and they do make people question the culture and the uh, you know the their job and their relationships and you know it does make people ask hard questions and we know that culture in general regardless of what kind of culture or what type or, or or even usually what era the people that are running the culture don't want the people in the culture asking difficult questions it's just the nature of the beast yes it's a it's a profound metaphysical uh, total experience you know uh, Larry and others talked about set and setting and how important it all is right right and uh uh, 
thinking back through the veils of time, you know, here it is Christmas, and uh, there's pretty good evidence that uh, that a lot of the uh, symbols we use now, like the Christmas tree and uh, huh, yeah. and the mistletoe, which is a psychoactive substance, and uh, and the uh, ornaments. Some uh, students of the shroom, you might say, say that uh, that they were actually the little spotted red and white amanita that grew at the base of certain trees. Mm-hmm, yeah, now, amanita is a kick kick butt substance. You know that. The dosage uh, regarding amin- the amanita mushroom is really, really critical <laughs> because it'll kill you. Right, you right. And the preparatory uh, is pretty important too. I know you've got to, I know you've got to boil it and do do some prep work. You got you got to perform a little alchemy there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, well, yeah. And this implies that in the shamanistic tradition, uh, they have probably through the eons. Ex- Seen quite well that if you go out and just gobble up mushrooms and toadstools, that there's a good, it's good population control too, you know. Right. <laughs> and uh, it was a really serious trial and error thing because. Of <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And uh, I, I'm sure. Well, from what I understand of some of my Celtic ancestors, that the. They took it all very seriously, the shamanistic thing, which included the brews and the potions and the and the psychoactive drugs. But they they kind of watched their youngins, you know, from the moment of birth, and somehow they separated uh, uh, their potential druid candidates from observation of the children, and then they very carefully set them aside and began training them. Hmm. It was a long preparation that took place right and uh, getting back to Larry's set and setting uh, uh, they'd they'd acculturate them to to doing the shaman thing and it not it not always involved uh, potions right but it was very careful psycho physical Experiment that took place. I, I met an Aztec once that carried a Jimson, the Tura root, wore it around his neck, and he said, "Yeah, the Indians used to use this stuff in their shamanistic ceremonies, but not lightly." And he said they would wear the thing around their neck for a couple of years first, talk to it, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and interface with it, and. Establish a relationship. They were really serious about some of right, that right, stuff, right. you know. Well, I, and I think that I think that's worth talking about for a second because, see, you know, first of all, yeah, I think I think that it's absolutely ridiculous that plants can be made illegal. I think that there should be a a, a plant drug act or or what Terrence called the vegetable drug act. Uh, that basically just says if it grows natural and you don't have to process it, you know, and do anything to it, then it shouldn't be illegal. But um, people have relationships with these plants, and people have had relationships with plants ever since we've walked on this earth. We have, whether we, whether we, it's in, whether it's on our radar radar screen or not, all of us have a direct uh, fundamental uh, symbiotic relationship with the plant kingdom. We can't live without them, and and 
even these psychoactive plants, although we may not eat them for nourishment, people do, and just like marijuana, people have uh, allegiances to these things. They have relationships with these plants, and they're not willing uh, to, uh, to, to give up personal experience um, because somebody dictated that it wasn't culturally acceptable. Well, you can make them illegal. You can pretend to make them illegal. It won't do any dang good, though. You know, because they're plants, man. They're, we share this world with them. And, and, you know, I remember they were going down in South America and spraying all this weird oh, stuff all yeah. over the marijuana field. And they're still doing it, you know, right on top of And all the hippies would, uh, would uh, respond by planting all their seeds in the courthouse parks and down the center lane. <laughs> <laughs> right. It became a real zoo. But you're right. You, you can legislate it, but it isn't going to work. is isn't going to work. But the problem in our machine sort of technology culture, in our 9-to-5 culture, where they want us to get up early in the morning and go to work every day for the rest of our lives, right. uh, we haven't, we don't have our, we don't have our druids. We don't have our, uh, uh, Easily accessible elders that uh, that know how to handle all this stuff, you know. Because uh, when we talk about these uh, some of these uh, uh, herbal substances, you know, they're powerful things, man. They're right. really powerful. They're the right. internal equivalent of the atomic bomb. Right. Some of them. Right. They blow up your world, no doubt. And they will rip away the boundaries. <laughs> no doubt about that. You don't know if you're. Agnes or Angus, <laughs> you know, not to mention anything else, you know. But back to my other thinking, you know, I think, uh, oh, man, where was it? Come on, boy. <laughs> I'm trying to set the thought. Wow. Uh, our understanding of evolution, where we came from, and uh, how we got here, and uh, what it's all about, to me, requires a really challenging uh, task. And that's backing off from the whole question of life and death far enough that we can see it. Right. Talk about busting through taboos. Man, no kidding. I mean, and that is the major one. And that is what the shamans do. You know, a good definition of shamanism is somebody who's seen the end. You know, somebody who's been there and then came back and then looked at things in a different way then, you know. No longer, you know, they took the boat ride and came back, <laughs> you know. And so uh, maybe that's, and, and, and again, um, maybe that's what, uh, you know. What and uh, at times I think it's worth looking into some of the creation myths that uh, go outside of our own particular culture, you know, the Judeo-Christian thing, and look sure. see what they say, because, you know, they say, they say other stuff. They say different stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, even, 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 the, even the Judeo-Christian tradition has, you know, different levels of initiation, so to speak. We know there are, you know, writings and, and uh, uh, scrolls and things that are tucked away deep within... You know, the bowels of the Vatican and places in Israel and stuff. And, uh, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, these sorts of things. Who knows what's in a lot of these things that we don't, 
uh, we, we really don't know, you know. Well, see, busting through the whole scientific paradigm, which is so influential on our culture right now, amongst other things. But uh, we really have to break through the veils of life and death in order to understand it. And, and you know, if you want to talk about shamans, you want to talk about wizards, I think those, that's the task of the, of the wizard, whether he does it through substance or the shamanistic substance, uh, the trip, you know, right. or whether he does it another way. We've got to do it. We've got to do it because we only have about 70, 80 years on this world. That's not long enough to figure out what's going on through observation of the uh, physical world. Right. And uh, that's a big challenge for a radio talk show. Plus, <laughs> through the barrier of life and death. Right. You know, you were talking. You know, you mentioned science being this uh, this art, basically, to measure physical things. You know, it's a methodology amongst amongst many a variety of methodologies. Right, and that's and that's the thing is that you know, science actually worked pretty good for chemistry and for you know hard physical things, but um, the the it was it was automatically sort of passed on to everything, including biology, which has just been a, di a disaster, you know. Uh, but you know, there's a funny story about Rene Descartes, you know, the guy that's sort of considered the founder of modern science, right? In his own journals, and this is the guy that founded, you know, modern rationalism and science, and he. He he said that uh, that he was visited by an angelic, radiant being <laughs> in a dream, and that this being told him that nature will be subjugated through the mastery of number and measure, and that's exactly what science has done is tried to dominate nature using measure and number but but to apply it to it, all it is is an is a is a is a is a is an art a minor art just like you say there are many many other means of uh analysis to the world especially the unseen world which science just denies exists you know well, you go back to the Celtic myths and legends, and they tell you quite a different story. And the, cra and the crazy thing, Kent, is that Descartes, the guy that founds it, founds it on a vision he had in a dream from an angel. Well, I'd have to look it up in the Internet to get my ducks in a row, but Hale, the great astronomer that... Uh, yeah, yeah. ...that uh, found it, I'm trying to think of which observatory, Palomar, I think. Yeah, and there's also a Hale Observatory somewhere, I think. yeah. Hale Observatory. Uh, anyway, he was prompted by some sort of little greed elf that crawled in through his window. <laughs> no kidding. Right. You know, a lot of these guys... They have... hospitalized him for that fact later on in his life. <laughs> nevertheless. Nevertheless. Yeah, so a lot of these guys have mystical or esoteric or psychedelic experiences and then uh, and then go on to do things that, uh, that are completely uh, 180 from those experiences. is actually pretty... P pretty amazing thing, so. You know, the Celtic myth, uh, I don't know if you have a break here pretty soon, but... Uh, yeah, we'll take a break and uh, watch you set something up. We'll take a break in a minute or two, whenever, whenever you want.
Well, the Celtic myths uh, are interesting in that they indicate, and I, I'm a real student of mythology because in many ways the myth is more durable than the uh, scientific uh, hypothesis. Yeah, myths hang right. around, and and I like to study them all, you know, with both my right and left brain. <laughs> and uh, but the uh, the Celtic myth, uh, you go way way back, tens of thousands of years, and there is a mention of the fact that the the way our entities, our human consciousness, came to this world was not necessarily always through the birth canal. Now that's a trip. <laughs> in other words, how did we get here in the first right. place? And, right. that, and the Celtic myth says it took stages of descension from a very ethereal uh, spiritual being that began to experiment with a, a 3D reality almost as though uh, entering a kind of holodeck type of experience. Right and adopting a simple elemental form at first shape-shifting their way into the into the three-dimensional experience sort of like you go on a vacation and uh, and then uh, they were called the firstborn in Celtic mythology does mm -hmm. that ring a bell the yeah. firstborn yeah yeah and in in, in Egyptian uh, mythology they called it Zeptepi Anyway, go on, go on. And then, and they encountered. Uh, they had then adopted more complex uh, 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 layers of density, uh, what we call protoplasm, roughly. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then they became men or the followers, and then began the. Uh, the birth, life, death, the entrance in through the through the womb, and then the exit out through the death womb. But uh, you understand that in in a very ancient mythology, we felt we, we uh, the spiritual entity that we that we tagged the human being or the human perception came in came gently toward this experience in, hmm. in quantum levels. Quantum, that's, I never really understood. What, what does quantum mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you hear it. Bad I toss that out uh, flippantly. Right. <laughs> I think that's the whole thing, that nobody knows what quantum mean, <laughs> means. That's the whole definition of it. Is it ev everything? It means everything and nothing at the same time. <laughs> Well, when my fur-bearing ancestors went to the Emerald Isle back in, from the copper mines in northern Spain, they, they encountered some of these beings, the firstborn. And uh, when you know, they coexisted with it for a while. In fact, they intermarried, apparently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some evidence of that in the mythology, sure. And the... Uh, uh, the sort of Merlin legend where he's half nature spirit, half mortal. Uh, figures into all this. Mm -hmm. and, and then when, you know, the Celts got in a war with him. And then they made an exit. <laughs> the firstborn made an exit, or it could be the other way around. The, 
the followers, the men, the protoplasm creatures, uh, dove a little deeper, and then uh, the firstborn or the ethereal beings didn't really leave. We left them. Hmm. Yeah, that reminds me of that story by Buck Young that we talked about. Yeah. Hey, listen, I think that's a good time to take a break. Uh, we'll uh, be back in a minute, okay, Kent? Yeah. This is um, Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. And uh, my guest is uh, Kent Stedman, kind of on a free-for-all evening here on Radio Orbit. We're talking about lots of different things, including hey, uh, human evolution and psychedelic substances and the psychedelic experience and what it means and if it can help us or hurt us and all these other things and we're talking about spirit and matter and lots of different things so anyway we'll be back to do it again in just a minute I'm going to take care of a little bit of business here uh, by the way anybody uh, who wants a CD-ROM of the entire archive of cyberspaceorbit.com and uh, a Fate Magazine t-shirt as well Call me within the next few minutes while I've got music on here uh, at 573-874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676. Okay? Uh, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Be back in a minute here. KOPN with a financial gift from Mojo's is proud to present New Year's Eve with American rhythm and blues trio, the Bel Airs. They have been playing together for more than 15 years. Details about New Year's Eve with the Bel Airs is available at www.mojoscolumbia.com or 573-875-0588.
Tragically Hip on Radio Orbit KOPN. That was Vapor Trails from uh, Phantom Power. Throw away the rudder. I love it. That's what we're talking about here on this program tonight. Throwing away the rudder. Taking a leap of faith off the... Walking off the abyss, right, Kent? And you know what? Sometimes, you know, uh, I've been talking a lot about Terrence lately, but he said um, that nature loves courage. And nature rewards courage. And when you walk off that abyss, it might turn out to be a feather bed, you know? And it loves novelty. It sure does. And, boy, things things are getting quite novel these days. Certainly, novelty exploding right now, and um, uh, and that's what he predicted. <laughs> yeah, that's what he predicted. He said this is. I mean, literally, what Terrence said many years ago is now sort of happening uh, right in front of our eyes here. So, anyway, okay. Um, uh, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is Kent Stedman from uh, CyberspaceOrbit.com. And you know, Kent, uh, I don't know if I should do this right now, but the, the thought just hit me. I kind of want to talk about Mars for a minute, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you want. Oh, uh, man, I've been I mean, going cross-eyed looking at these rover pictures. Oh, my gosh. The one, the one that I've got up on my site right now is the one that, uh, one of the ones, that, one of the many that you have up at, at cyberspaceorbit.com, but uh, over at Radio Orbit, um, I've got that railroad tie-looking thing up there. I mean, it looks like a cedar log. It looks like a cedar log from my house. And up near the crater, there's more debris if you click around a little bit on my website, uh, cyberspaceorbit.com. Uh, uh, you click around, you can see uh, that toward the crater rim is more similar debris. And then what we're looking at right now, which was a mystery at first to me and is still a partial mystery, uh, off further out away, maybe uh, several miles, actually, the rover is picking up on a really bright, bright object that looked like pixel destruction at first, but actually it's a very bright object, and uh, I didn't know what the blue blazes I was seeing out there, so I used the forum, which can be trying, (laughs) Right, right, right. and I trolled in the forum and said, what the heck is this, and the uh, mainstreamers jump in. I think they're right this time. Uh, the the astros, right? And they say that it's part of the uh, uh, entry paraphernalia, the back shield and the chute. Mm. But I keep looking at the uh, animation I made from several frames from the Mars rover, and there's still some mysteries. And they're, they're going to go up close and look at this at this junk laying out there debris laying out there off in the distance which is highly reflective and uh, we'll get hopefully we'll get a closer look at it if they allow us to see the data if they don't then I guess we can pretty much use (laughs) any interpretation (laughs) that we like it's a two-headed jackalope or something so I hope they (laughs) (laughs) I hope they'll allow us an inspection through their through their uh through the internet allow us to see what they're looking at off there in the distance up close yeah well there's some strange things that that uh what looked like wood to me was just the one that really blew me away because it's so out of place you know to, maybe maybe for the people that don't have a web connection or give them a quick little description of what we're talking about well it looks like a railroad tie 
Yeah, laying like in a desert, basically, right? My great-great-granddaddy pounded spikes in those things. I should know railroad tires. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if it's a piece of wood, it probably is petrified. We've seen other what looks to be calcified wood up there early on in the rover uh, in the spirit. Uh, uh, rover. The, the spirit there is, too. There's opportunity in their spirit. Right, right, right. We saw some uh, chunks of stuff that were kind of hollowed out on the inside. One had looked like a rectangular hollow going through this sort of petrified-looking log. And so maybe we're looking at petrified wood. I don't know what. Or maybe it could be more debris, but I don't know. I can't imagine NASA in, in their sophistication in it, putting a two-by-four in there. <laughs> in their space lander and shooting it through space. Maybe they'd do that. I don't know. Right. It sure looks like a plank of wood. You know, maybe uh, it's hard to get an idea of scale, but it looks like a darn two-by-four, eight-foot two-by-four laying there. Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like, yeah. Who knows? Interesting. All right, well, and uh, what do you make of, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, the... Irish fella, Sean, uh, leaving NASA. I forget his last name. Is it O'Keefe? Oh, is the job open? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said. I told, I, I told, I told people to call NASA and, and tell them to hire Mike Hagan for the for the new director. I said, and, and I and I promise you, I will make changes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. I think it's time to to uh, uh, reorganize the team a little bit, don't you? I mean, it's all been in the hands of geologists, and they're they're. Uh, geology is still pretty uh, earthbound, you know. Right, right, right. And uh, but now we're dealing with uh, stellar and galactic space, and I don't know what do we need now? Uh, astrophysicists. We need an anthropological team. Yeah, we sure do. We need an anthropological team. We need some biologists for sure, uh, and we need it out in the open for 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 heck's sake, man. We got to know what's going on. For all we know, that is going on. They're probably doing all these things, but uh, and, and all we get to see is the rocks. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're going into Titan pretty soon. Now that's going to be an interesting. Now that's a you know that's as big as it's Mercury. Sure, Pluto. Right. That's a planetoid. Actually, it's the moon of Saturn, but Saturn being a big critter has moons that are like some of our other planets, you know, and this has an atmospheric shroud with probably H2O involved, hmm. nitrogen, oxygen, so that will be really interesting to see what's down there on old Titan. We'll see pterodactyls flying around and stuff, you know. Well, why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> why not? Yeah. Power of the imagination. See, we're talking in the last segment about... Uh, The shamanistic experience. Well, what it boils down to is uh, various uh, vortexes and ways to to allow the imagination to to uh, empower the the human imagination, which uh, is something that can be done just simply through self-declaration at any moment. Right. I used to teach uh, potential artists. I teach these classes with cross-section of humanity called art appreciation. I tell them, I'd say, you want to be creative. You want to be an artist. Well, there's two processes. Simple steps. Two simple steps. 
A, declare yourself an artist, and B, do art. That's it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, we need to get that going again, guys. We need to start doing our art and our theater and our street theater and our and our uh, music. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, you know, and um, I think uh, the way, well, what I, you know, what I think ties in, Kent, the way, talking about the power of imagination, here's an example for everybody out there. Uh, you know, earlier in the night we were talking about the, uh, uh, some of these psychoactive substances, the, 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 um, the psychedelic plants and and drugs that were that really changed that entire generation uh, back in the mid 60s through the 70s when you agree Kent that there was some I mean just major major cultural shifting that was happening back then yeah it's a, it was a socio cultural political environment that was really very profound for millions and millions of people and yet uh, uh, the big hush came down around the whole thing as though it never maybe really happened or something. But I'm telling you, Earth was a different it was a different world during the 60s and 70s. A lot of people were perceiving perceiving Earth and, and the cosmos in an entirely different way. And yet, uh, the discussion of it uh, was uh, squelched. Wow. And I think as a result, a lot of people, in order to reconnect, a lot of the old hippies and beatniks and the, uh, the creatives, the artists, the musicians, the poets, went on the Internet in order to reconnect. <laughs> yep, and that is exactly where I want to go with this, because that is the quintessential exa uh, uh, example of this power of imagination because in, including your, yourself included because all of you guys and girls not all of you but, but like you say a number of you all who had those experiences and, and knew that they weren't aberrations and they weren't psychotic and they weren't delusional and they weren't uh, uh, you know dangerous to society or whatever well actually they probably were but not in you know what I'm saying anyway uh, well that was a rowdy and, and very rough experiment I have to right, admit right. I mean some people didn't survive right. you know that don't you oh yeah oh, boys yeah. and girls oh yeah some yeah, of them didn't make it yeah yeah <laughs> and, and that's and that's the that's trial by fire man and so we didn't have we didn't have a, we don't we only had a handful of guru I mean of elders that the that knew how to handle these things, and they are not a joke, like you said before. And I want you know we should make that perfectly clear. I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, advising anyone to go out and try these things. What I'm saying is that we need to learn about them. We need to study them. If you choose to uh, to have the experience, make sure you understand it and uh, and and do it in a manner that's respectable and and with with intelligence. And uh, because these things are, because if you do it right, it will work. <laughs> and it will work. And you will, uh, you will see some of these things that, uh, that change perspective, that remove and dissolve boundaries. And the example that Kent just 
uh, touched on, and we'll 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 uh, we'll take off on this after the top of the hour here, was um, that a lot of the people that did make it through and did appreciate the experiences went onto the web and created, in effect, the internet as we know it today, almost undercover. You know, it was the 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 government didn't uh, create the internet per, per se, or they certainly didn't. Uh, uh, have any great desire to see it uh, built? Big business didn't demand it and say we have to have this uh, this thing. It sort of it sort of grew out of out of this. Who knows? Uh, I, I mean, you probably can talk better about it, Ken, about what really happened because you were on the net very very early on. Uh, but uh, you know, a lot of these people that own the world invested in it, and they got kind of I think they kind of got burned by their greed. Because now the Internet is the physical, in my opinion, it is the physical, technological manifestation of the psychedelic experience. Well, in my case, I'll just speak from the gut here, man. In my case, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the alchemy of the 60s and 70s was uh, wonderful. And also, uh, it, we hit a dead end with it, too. Uh, in the fact that uh, the the sort of substance alchemy that we experience does have it does have a an a beginning and an end at least well let me I'll just personalize it did for me you know right uh, there's a point where uh, uh, getting high uh, for me didn't work anymore <laughs> I mean. Uh, can sit down with a hundred hits of LSD and over a period of five or ten, you know, five or six months, you know, ingest them all and see what happens. Well, what happens is they quit working. <laughs> <laughs> they quit working. You really do hit a wall with it. And then, uh, uh, I mean, it's like going into the garden eating them and being tossed out again. Mm. And, uh, and for me, that uh, that got me involved in some sort of self-destructive. I was very, very disappointed, you know. And, uh, and that went through a dark night of the soul. Well, right. no biggie, you know. We all go through dark nights of the soul. That's the that's the, <laughs> that's the stuff of alchemy right there. Well, hey, look, that's a that, that's a good time to take a break here. We're at the top of the hour, and then we'll talk about what happened next. Yeah, we'll talk about what happened next and what's gonna and what's coming and the potentials and the opportunity uh, right now. Even though it may seem like Kent says it may look like the dark night of the soul out there, but uh, the dark night of the soul is the prima materia of alchemy, which will be transmuted into the dawn and the rising sun. So we're going to talk more about that coming back uh, on KOPN Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan, and uh, I'm talking to Kent Stedman from www.cyberspaceorbit.com. We'll be back with Kent in just a minute. And uh, let me do my business here. This is uh, 89.5 Mid-Missouri Source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's more than radio, community radio. KOPN Columbia, your imagination station, okay? Back in a minute uh, before that, this is World Party with Love Street.
That's Love, uh, Love Street from uh, from World Party. Their uh, CD called Goodbye Jumbo. All right, and this is Mike, uh, Radio Orbit, KOPN. I got Kent Steadman on the line here, and we're chatting away as we always do. So you still with me here, Kent? Yeah, I'm still here. All right, so. 
trying to think ahead here. I guess I better not do that. Just, uh, <laughs> I know. I get more confused. <laughs> <laughs> I'm better uh, off. What? That's the dark night of the soul. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the dark night of the soul. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I'm 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 one of these people that really does believe that uh, um, that things wonderful things come out of those sorts of situations if you can make it through and so um when i see things getting bad and getting nasty on the planet and sort of chaotic and out of control the way they are right now i don't fret too much because i think that we're getting very close to that uh, that transitional point where the worse it gets the closer we are to the dawn so to speak and uh, it may get ugly it may get uglier. It may get worse. In fact, it probably will. Um, but uh, it doesn't mean that this is all for naught. I really don't believe that. I do think that nature or God or Gaia or whatever you want to call it does have something in mind. And, and you know, uh, you know, Kent, and I'll, I'll, let me finish my thought and then I'll let you jump in. But, you know, I've been thinking about this evolutionary thing and, you know, he, Monkeys don't. Monkeys are pretty lazy, and they and they 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 tend to perform best under pressure. You know what I mean? And I think that that's what's happening. I, you know, I don't I'm I don't believe evolution or whatever you know happens uh, on a slow curve. I believe these changes happen really quickly. I believe we get on plateaus and stay at one level for a long time, and then bang, something happens and we jump up to the next level. So. I'm kind of hopeful that uh, that that's what we're seeing here, and that we really are sort of in the midst of a global alchemical sort of transmutation. And in order for that to happen, it, you got to go through the the crap, the crap, because that's that's the material that you make the gold out of. Yeah, well, uh, for me that happened. You know, uh, uh, the passing of the, uh, the the summer of love and the. Uh, the awesome sort of otherworldly uh, new kind of matrix experience that we had back in the 60s and the 70s that was hard to hard to deal with and uh, uh, you know then I got involved in, in some alchemy that was not good for me namely uh, rock gut whiskey man <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's not uh, that, that ain't gonna help anybody I set out to break the world's record on that and uh, then I couldn't get out of that on my own you know right and uh, you've heard my my tale. As the Native Americans, the elders came and grabbed me and took me in the sweat lodge and said, "Son, you have about a week to live." And I told them, "Therefore, crap." <laughs> Resisted profoundly, and uh, but they were right. And, you know, within about a week, I, I reached an impasse. And, and uh, after much preliminary struggle with my poor plight. Uh, turned and uh, went and sought my vision quest, you might say, which means I just stopped what I had to do. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it wasn't all on my own. I, at times I I thought like a, I was a new kind of automaton, you know, right. uh, thrown out and thrown away, but sort of just still putting one foot in front of the other and, and uh, you know getting sober and all that kind of stuff. Right. And, uh, well, anyway, back to the Internet. Uh, see, the 60s and the 70s weren't all of my life. I was born in 1942, and I was born a very uh, unusual, I think, kid. 
in that I was always a really imaginative, had a powerful, powerful dream world. Uh, <clears throat> I had experiences that even then I couldn't explain. And I was living in a very controlled, doctrinal, you might say, environment right, right. in my early years, and yet all this wild stuff was happening. I was seeing things coming front and center into my vision that the other people weren't seeing. And uh, one thing leads to another, you know. <laughs> right. But, uh, oh, man, now I lost my train of thought. Butt in with the comments. So well, I we were, figure out where we're, I we're, am. We're, 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 we were, you were going somewhere with the Internet, and, and, I, and uh, you were talk, just talking about how the 60s and 70s weren't your entire history. You were born and raised in a... You know, a pretty uh, a pretty uptight environment in there in, in in Mormon Utah and yeah, and so your your background was shaped by a lot of different things. Yeah, went through a lot of different things. And I went from I went from a, a very religious lad, you know, Sunday school teacher, scoutmaster, softball pitcher, <laughs> right, <laughs> sort of a John boy, and went to California and. Tried that, man. Went from LDS to LSD. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, uh, well, what got me into the Internet is uh, all my experiences, some total, uh, at a certain point in my, in my dark night of the soul, which I now regard with a certain amount of amusement, and that's what's gotten me through. Anybody else out there that's uh, going through the dark night of the soul, well, uh, you know, you're sick sense of humor will get you through it all. That's right. <laughs> the ability to witness yourself as uh, that poor little ant down there crawling around. Yeah. And, uh, uh, well, I went on the Internet to find other people like myself and to continue the journey. And uh, and that was pretty early on in the Internet days. Is right? there anybody out there like me? <laughs> you know? Right. That was the impetus of the internet, and uh, uh, when was that, Kent? Well, my good wife, old Wendy, she came home with a, with an old Tandy Sensation computer. About when was it? <laughs> <laughs> In the '90s, early '90s. Yeah. And I said, "No, get that thing out of here, five, five. <laughs> you know, right, right. I'm Mister Natural. I don't want that thing in my house." Well, boy didn't take me long to nobody else could get on it because I was on it. Right. And yeah. what I was doing was sending out a signal to anybody, everybody I could find and saying, hey, I've had this whole boatload of weird stuff happen to me during my life. Is there anyone out there like me? I found hundreds. Yeah. yeah. Hundreds. Well, I think that that is another uh, good example of 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 why I make the analogy of the internet with the psychedelic experience because it dissolves boundaries. In this case, it dissolved the boundaries between you and a whole bunch of other people that you really needed to know and really needed to meet, you know, in order to give your own self some satisfaction or verification or or whatever it was that you needed, you know, wh why you went on that quest. And without the web, would you have ever found those people? You know what I mean. I may have. You may through, have through sure. other, you know. I mean, the world's a crazy place. Right, uh, right. 
but that's what happened. Right. And that's what and that's what I found amongst a lot of uh, searchers, questers out there. They that's what happened to them too. They they got on the internet and said, "Wow, I've ex- experienced some weird stuff that I can't talk about to my family or to anybody, my preacher, my my government." And you know, it's taboo almost. You know, we yeah, we can't almost, talk about this. But now here I am. I got it. I got this uh, really cool avatar handle, you know, like a <laughs> CB <beer. laughs> Right, right. And uh, and I'm anonymous. And now I, I'm daring to say Tell my this story. weird thing happened to me in 1955, and I've never figured it out, you know. And uh, I want to see if any. Happened to you too, and uh, so I began really soulfully connecting with an awful lot of people. Everybody suddenly talking about things they wouldn't even dare mention in their households or in their communities, right. or within the framework of their culture. And we all start talking about that stuff, man. And I'll tell you something. I think uh, as a result, I think we're there's a kind of we're becoming psychic or something mm. through reaching out to one another uh, through the through the ethereal uh, internet that we're starting to visualize each other and, and remotely see each other and it's creating a uh, well psychic and psychedelic you know yeah, yeah those words. And and a field effect of sorts. I believe that that's certainly within the realm of of physics now. You know, field effects are real. And sure, man, I believe it all day. And I've had because I've had incredible synchronicities and things happen over the web. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, and you've been involved in a number of them, but but also other people. And I mean, it's uncanny how some of these things have come together. And I also think it's absolutely amazing that. A lot of, like you say, people like yourself that went out there looking for uh, kindred souls, you know, kindred spirits, that not only did you find them, but a lot of you went on to help uh, sculpt and develop the web into what it is today. And uh, I really mean that. I I mean, you know, for all you people out there, if you think that the web isn't a psychedelic experience well first of all you don't go to the same websites that I go to and go to cyberspace orbit and spend a few hours chunking around through there and it is a psychedelic experience and you will walk away from that thinking differently than you thought when you sat down and and I'm not saying which way what you're going to think but I guarantee you're going to think something different and uh, this is what this is one you know Kent's site is one example of this incredible uh, uh, technology that has now linked the entire planet and is growing like a like a like a brain it's like this global neural net that's just in its infancy almost and it's growing and you can watch it actually Kent in uh, there's a guy on the web that did a time-lapse animation of the the internet as the nodes 
grew over time, you know? And it looks exactly like the development of a human child's brain. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's fractal like that. And uh, it's amazing, actually. And I think that something is happening. Something is happening. And the web is either catalyzing it or, or is it, you know? If AI, uh, if artificial intelligence is going to uh, manifest, it's going to do it in a, in, in a, in a space that is pure information because that's what AI will be it will be pure information and the only thing that we have on this planet that's that is that is the internet that's where it will that's where it will be born I think it's more than TikTok information too you know, I mean uh, I discovered right off the bat that I can go to a certain place on the internet and open my eyeballs or uh, look through a telescope that's trained on the sun right, right. <laughs> Yeah, we talk about uh, these Mars probes. And I the, mean, your visual sense, everything, your, uh, and sound and everything that goes into it. Because I'm, I've been for ten years now. I've been watching. Uh, I've been watching the face of the sun daily. You know, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, wow, right? You know, you know Kent, uh, we, we, you and I did a program a few months ago. Uh, when Tutatis was flying by, and Charlie Plyler over there at Elfrad actually recorded the sound of this giant asteroid as it passed by our planet, and we were able to listen to this from space, and and we played it over the radio, and this is again, this is a psychedelic experience, man, and and uh, the fact that. People may not realize it's available or don't recognize it for what it is. These things are all mind-blowing, mind-bending events. And, and you know, I want to add that the Internet, you know, if you're living in Manhattan and you're a hip, cool dude and you think you know about the Internet and everything, okay, you may. And you may say, so it's not a psychedelic experience. That's an overstatement. Well, take a child in North Korea or Bangladesh or some other remote place that has no access to the outside world, that doesn't know anything about what's happening outside of their own small world. And, and the Internet is literally a reality-changing event. It shows people what is going on outside of their own cultural boundaries. And this is why I make the analogy, because the Internet has the incredible, now global... What happened in the 60s and 70s in California is now resurging in a, in, in, in a technological manifestation and is now giving every person on this planet the opportunity to experience that psychedelic uh, sort of thing so that they can get beyond their boundaries. And I think that it's happening, and I don't think it can be stopped. And it's going to get really in, even more interesting. Because, uh, you know, out here at the University of Washington, they're experimenting with a new way of uh, projecting the Internet into the brain, and that's by painting the imagery directly on the iris of your, <laughs> of your eyes, you know, and whether you're a, <laughs> whether you're a gamer, <laughs> whether you're a gamer uh, or like geez. to look through the Soho telescope at the sun, 
what that will mean is there won't be any screen anymore here. There won't be my my uh, uh, trashed out computer area here with junk piled all over the place. You'll just be there. And you'll see it through your, own, through your own eyes. Now, that makes me think of something else, Ken. And you could probably be walking along down the street and push a little button in your pocket, you know, and you'll be there, you know. You know, um, in uh, the shamanistic societies, down in the Amazon at least, they take a uh, concoction that's called ayahuasca, and it's a uh, combinatory a drink, a beverage that is made from this big vine, uh, and then uh, another plant that uh, uh, that when combined and boiled and then uh, distilled down and boiled again, and and they they actually perform an alchemy on it. Uh, they create this potion, drink it, and it it uh, it has uh, orally active DMT, this molecule that uh, that that creates this. Uh, super intense apparently um, psychedelic experience and anyway uh, what the way Terrence and Dennis described it uh, to me was that when the shamans would drink this potion they would they would uh, once they were under the effect they would begin to sing and they would sing these songs and afterwards after the uh, after the effects had worn off, hours afterwards, they would sit around and discuss what their experiences were and how they experienced them together, right? And one of the things that they would say was they would describe the song that the other guy was singing, for example, in visual language. In other words, they the effect of ayahuasca is that it shifts the, you know a particular set of neurotransmitters so that sound can be seen and be held so so they talk about how you know well i like the part where you had the green stripes with the red polka dots but when you got into the sort of uh, camouflage i really didn't like that part at all <laughs> right and the, and 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 you're thinking well what the hell are they talking about right but what is happening is that they are, what, what Terrence said, he said when he went down there was that he was naive because he believed that telepathy was being able to hear someone's thoughts, right? He said what he realized after the ayahuasca experience and after seeing what the shaman did was that telepathy wasn't hearing somebody's thoughts, it was seeing what they mean. And and uh, literally being in their shoes, right? And he said that he believed that language, human language, was the key to all of this, and that even, and that and that because of the the neurochemistry of the human brain, that we're very close, just a one or two gene mutation away from all of us being able to experience sound as a visual phenomenon and be able to build creations with song and things like that and it ties back into that old alchemical language of the you know the the uh you know the bardic tradition of the poet whose song is so sweet that it literally sweeps you into his world you know 
That's what Grandfather Wallace, uh, Mike and I, had the great opportunity to meet some of the old uh, Lakota seers and uh, elders before they went on. And one of them was Grandfather Wallace. He just blew me away, man, what he told me. (laughs) He's a great big guy, you know, and I sort of went gulp, you know. Uh, not only in recognition of his great physical stature, but his uh, his sort of uh, age and his elderhood and his knowledge, you know. And he told he sat down and he began to talk about uh, the the type of codes that were uh, in the Lakota language and how important it was for him to uh, keep this language going because. Uh, it was more of a what can I say a hieroglyphic type of language in, in the fact that well for instance he said you know uh, in Lakota when you when you say a Lakota word say the wind you know uh, depending on how you say it you know you'll be able to communicate to the other person the picture in their mind of uh, what direction the wind's coming from whether it's a hot wind or a cold wind or mm-hmm. whether or how fast it's blowing, and you know, you could sort of uh, uh, with sound uh, pipe that directly into their consciousness to where they visualize it, feel it, see it, sense it, right, you know, know right. what it is. Right. See, this as is... opposed to the kind of linear language that, that we have here. Right. And then he went into a, a big discussion of the Lakota language and quantum physics. And, oh, man, I was just going. Holy well, God. you know, he, he he hit on those things because he's right. Language is the key to this stuff because somehow somehow language is now our evolutionary vehicle. You know, in, in other words, since language has evolved, we, we can't evolve any faster than our language does because you can't go somewhere that you can't describe. Right? So you sort of have to... The description has to sort of come first now, and then, and then you train on that, and then sort of point in that direction or whatever. But I think that language is a big part of this. And what is computer code? What runs the? And and the other thing is, co- language is just code. You know, it's just code, just like computer language is code. And it's interesting that, you know, we talk about it as a language, this HTML and Java and, you know, all these sorts of things. So the language is evolving. It may not be evolving the way we thought it was going to, but there's a whole new architecture of language that's been developed around the web. New words have to be developed, you know what I mean? New concepts. And this is psychedelic in nature. You know, uh, in the 60s and the 70s, one of the things that, couldn't be lost even though everything was quashed even though everything got thrown under the rug and got beaten down and illegalized and all that stuff the language stuck you know we have terms like you blew my mind or you know what a trip or you know uh uh i don't know you know these the, the sorts of things that before the psychedelic era of the 70s people never had a way to express those sorts of ideas. Yeah, I remember some real ironic phrases like uh, "act real." <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, so those things, those things were created then, and those were changes in language. Oof. 
and la- you know, and language and communication are also what breaks down barriers. You know, human speech is a f- fantastic, extraordinary thing when you think about it. You know, it's it's behavior. It's not something that's required. You can shut up if you want. You don't have to speak. Well, I mean, I can't. <laughs> but um, I remember standing out with a group of hippies, and we're all stoned on something or other. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> a place called Dottie D- Dottie's Den, which is a one-room saloon. Uh, uh, some musicians w- that we respected were playing there, and uh, uh, there are all kinds of Harleys parked all around there. And uh, right. uh, we were seeing all kinds of stuff happening, you know. <laughs> Here you are in Sanger, California, in front of Bud Lills, uh, otherwise known as Dottie's Den, and this big Pegasus comes flying through the window or something like that. And then the police show up, and one hippie turns to the other and goes, for God's sake, act real. <laughs> no, that's what it means. You know? Oh, my God. Yeah, see, now, how could, that, that, that phrase would never have been developed, you know, had that not happened in that experience. And you can't, you know, you can't... Uh, you can eliminate uh, the surface, uh, you know, you can hide the drugs and make it illegal, but you cannot eliminate these experiences and you can't eliminate the language that came from them. And it's really actually a wonderful thing. It's great. You know, we use the language all the time, especially you and me, because we're always looking at things that are so trippy. So you have to use that sort of language. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, that's, uh, I don't know, I think it's wonderful. And the language thing is... Um, it's evolving, and and I think that I think that these attacks on the First Amendment and things like this are nothing more than 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 an attempt to cr- to control language. Kent, I think that 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 is the key. The try, you know, the the dumbing down uh, is so devastating because. Uh, the elimination of the language and the limiting of the language, again, like I said before, if you can't describe something, if you don't understand the language, you can't go there. And this is why we have to, uh, as we were talking about before, we have to push the art pedal through the freaking floorboard and we have to get creative with our language and therefore our art and... Uh, and and now's our time because we now have the medium to do it. Look at what look at what you and me are doing. Yeah, well, uh, see, folks, uh, Mike and I every once in a while the the, the spoken language uh, just sort of goes <laughs> and we pull out our we pull out our guitars and right. take it from there. I got a guitar sitting right here, my new silver. You hear that? Wow, it sounds like, it sounds like a Dobro. Hey, yeah, it's a big silver. A big resonator. <laughs> Chrome Dobro. Wow. It's awesome, you know. Yeah. I feel like I should bow to it or something. That's awesome. <laughs> hit, it, hit it one more time, and then we're going to take a break. <laughs> I mean, if I, if I shout across the room, the sucker shouts back. You know, that's an interesting thing, too, is, you know, the whole idea of resonance. That's a pretty strange thing. You... you uh, strike a a note on a whatever you know on a violin or whatever and the piano across the room sounds you, you, that's nothing less than action at a distance well wallace said that the, that in his tradition the the the, 
the star people gave him. I looked, found this on the internet after the fact. Wallace said that the star people gave him a whistle capable of producing a sound that would levitate giant stones in the air. I remember. I was there when he told us that. <laughs> and remember what he said after that? What? He said, in fact, that's. He, he made a joke of all the engineers that were trying to figure out how the Giza pyramids were built. And he said, any engineer worth his salt knows that by the time you get to the, the certain level of the pyramid, if you're building from the ground up, it will not be able to support itself and it will fall. He said the way they did it was using that whistle. They built it from the top down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, my God. So anyway. Well, I can grok it. <laughs> right. Grok. Grok. Remember, let's, stranger let's... in a strange land. New mm-hmm. word, grok. Yeah. To grok. To <laughs> understand conceptually and fully. All right, look, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with Kent Stedman from cyberspaceorbit.com in just a few minutes. Uh, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit, and we're having a fun conversation tonight. And uh, check this out. This is uh, Allison Chains Unplugged, and the song is called Brother.
Chains. I was brother from their unplugged CD uh, for MTV back there in what 1996 or 97, something like that. Anyway, this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. It's 4:40 or so in the AM on uh, December 19th, Sunday morning. Stick around for Carol Greenspan and Jewish Spectrum. That'll be coming up in about 19 minutes. And uh, before that, we got about uh, 10 or 15 left with uh, my buddy Kent Stedman from Seattle, Washington, and uh, www.cyberspaceorbit.com. We've been chatting about lots of different things tonight, as we always do. And uh, you still with me there, bud? Uh, yeah, I'm still here. All right. I have no idea what to say next. I know. I know. I don't, I don't either. This is the Kent and Mike. <laughs> the Kent and Mike show. Yeah, we talk about... Uh, this is the way we talk in real life, folks. So it is, and I think this is organic. Man. It is, that's for sure. <laughs> so anyway, well, I sure think that you're right. You were talking about music before the before the break, and we've talked about music before. But music is that another, you know, alchemical language. And you know, there was a you made me think of an old quote, and I don't know if it's actually real or not, but it was it was attributed to Beethoven um, back in the day. And uh, he was quoted as saying that if you could hear the music in, that I hear in my mind, in my own head, you wouldn't pay any attention to the stuff that I've written. Oh, that happens. You to know? A musician, that happens to every musician. That suddenly you'll hear music. And it's, uh, in my case, it wasn't the, the, the sort of earthy folk music that I plunk away at and it wasn't uh, it wasn't the blues it was just something really incredible you know like a more of a massive fugue <laughs> and it it, it you know, with a lot of simultaneous sounds all happening at once and a great chorus going on <laughs> with it and then those things will happen to me in moments of stillness you know and right. it's uh, really amazing and it's kind of like the carrot in front of the musician right there the harmonica slightly out of reach you know right 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 yeah it happens once in a while when it does it's something else but it describes what they talk about now about uh, filaments about strings string theory you know a humble person like me a local yokel that, that packs around a guitar from here to there my interpretation of string theory <laughs> might be slightly different, but to me it's a uh, ringing string, strings that ring other strings. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that we use th that they use that terminology too. You know, we, we we spin a yarn, we follow a thread. Lives are made of cloth. 
you know, it's all about weaving, and Terrence talked about that too in in uh, the web. <laughs> yeah, the web, and and all of this stuff is about these, and you know, the thread in particular, and not to mention, you know, the snake and DNA and the spiral staircase and all these things are sort of uh, markers or indicators, pointers, saying, hey, there's something here, you know, and. Uh, music certainly is one of those things, and it breaks through boundaries again. Music can certainly break through boundaries, and uh, so I, uh, one of the reasons I like Columbia so much in this area is there's just a thriving music scene here, and uh, some really talented musicians playing all kinds of different uh, uh, types of music. You'd love it here, Kent. There's a great bluegrass scene here. There's a great rock and roll scene, and uh, anyway, that. Uh, is is reflected in the culture here. I feel it. I see it. Uh, I experience it here at the radio station. You know, uh, it is a um, diverse, open-minded culture, relatively speaking. Right? Certainly, we could go much further. I'd love to see it go much beyond where it is. But compared to Denver, Colorado, where I came from, uh, which was turning into a a fascist police state in 2002 when I left and it's gotten worse since then and I know many of the big cities are like that now so you know the arts the arts the arts that's where it's at yeah I'm ready I've got a I've got my little portable uh, amplifier now and I've got my guitars plugging into it and I'm ready to go down to Pike Street and first you know, mm-hmm. downtown Seattle with my with my Dobro and my portable amplifier, if they'll let me use it. My my, my puppets, my hand puppets. Right. I got hand puppets and a little dancing man on a board, and start doing a little theater down there, street theater. Because wow. I think you know that kind of voice is a lot more powerful than than we give it credit for. Oh, no kidding. And uh, I've had some real threshold experience playing music with other musicians where we went into this space how can I describe it the music began to play us (laughs) rather than us struggling with wrestling with our instruments the music just sort of penetrated came from somewhere else took over and we just were uh, piping it somehow playing way ahead of ourselves (laughs) and that's an awesome experience I wish everybody could do that and you can't you can. Like I say, if you want to be a creative individual, it takes two things. Declare yourself one and then do it. You know, and whether you pick up a, a, a washboard and clatter on it or uh, bang some spoons together, you know. Or throw a bunch of paint on a piece of canvas or, yeah. you know, yeah, the, express it, whatever, through some one of these means. Dance, sing. Scream, howl at the friggin' moon. And there's you know? no one way to do it. There aren't any rules. You know, right. people ask me what art is, and I don't know. <laughs> I've been an artist all my life. I don't know. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a personal expression. I think it's that which terrifies thy neighbor or something. I don't know what it is. <laughs> terrifies Washington. Well, it is crazy, you know. It really is. I mean, when you think about it, how... Art and creativity has been stifled, even though on the surface the, 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 the guise is given that it's, that it's supported. But art and creativity have been utterly stifled 
And what is there to fear from these things? They're, they're literally uh, people that are afraid, frightened to death of creativity and art. Hey, it's helped me survive. There's a, oh, there God. are periods in my life where I was really on top of it. I had all the perks. I had a you know, fancy sports car, a little Tudor French house, you know, with mm-hmm. the, and there were periods in my life when I was camping, man. <laughs> and yeah. that was it did. And that came later, actually. You'd think I'd have gotten a little more sensible approach to that. Well, I, I found myself in a situation where I was camping. I had no money, and uh, I had my guitar, and I was in this campground, and uh, I had no food, so I went around. And there were people having family reunions. I say, you want some music? <laughs> right. And suddenly I had apple pie and roast beef. <laughs> well, you know, you, you, like as you say, you and I have talked about this before, but you know, my, although I'm a little bit younger than you, my life sort of went the opposite, and ho- and hopefully it stays on the track. But I I screwed up early and had all my stuff go on, go down really young and through till the time I was maybe thirty, thirty five, and then I sort of came out of it, and uh, and things are going okay right now. <laughs> so. Uh, but if you lose your but, day job, folks, what the heck? Pick up a banjo, see where it takes you. Right, right, and <laughs> and, uh, and just take that take that leap of faith off that cliff, like we were talking about, and it might uh, it might just lead you. You know, there's this whole idea of uh, you know being helped by hidden hands. I said I said earlier that nature loves courage, and um, Terence once said that that he was talking to a mushroom, and the mushroom told him. Nature loves courage, and he said, "Well, what's in it for me?" You know, <laughs> yeah. You know, and 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 the mushroom said, "Well, nature loves courage, so it will uh, it will reward courage by removing obstacles." And and I believe that to be true because, to a certain extent, I've been able to pull that off uh, in my own life and do some things that. Uh, I didn't think I would have been capable of doing, but just by taking that chance and uh, giving it, giving up to it, like you've like you've told me many times, uh, you know, hum- humility and this sort of thing really is important, I think. But regardless, you know, people do their own thing. But anyway, uh, anything's possible, people, especially today. You know, there's this air Kent that we're under. You know that the society is being oppressed, and the Patriot Act, and now the Patriot Act Two, and 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 don't get me wrong; these are all pieces of legislation that I despise, and I think that they're worthless stacks of three thousand page toilet paper. But I still think that, regardless of all the legislation, they can't legislate fast enough to keep up with anything, much less manage it. And I think that we are more free right now the potential for miracle is more right now this particular moment and every moment it becomes more than the previous and we are living in a time where we can do anything we just have to get past the illusion that we can't well i've been through my sunday school phase i've been through my hippie phase and i've been through i was a cowboy for a while and i tried riding a harley for a while but you know what this is all going to be recorded for the internet. I just want to tell those fascists out there that now I am absolutely perfect, <laughs> <laughs> which is untrue. But uh, at least I'm going to turn more to my uh, dobro right here. Right. Start picking some music. That's a, 
What was it? What was it that Kenny Hall said? That uh, the tougher, tougher times. What, what what did he say? Well, it was on a, his friend, his a guy named Frank Hicks, who played the best passing rhythm guitar I've ever heard in my life, and he's been around. He's gone now, but he he's, was playing with uh, the Texas Playboys and all those. Guys. <laughs> and he said he was also a railroad engineer, and his great famous profound ringing statement was you know Kent I want to tell you a secret he said the worse times get the better we musicians do <laughs> <laughs> alright well that's if, if that's not a hint I don't know what is because uh, this uh, times are pretty ugly right now and like I say if you, yeah, I, I, I am an optimist about things because I do think that you have to go through the dark night before uh, before things get better but boy it's pretty dark and I hope it doesn't have to get too much darker before before things come around but I do think uh, I, I think they're going to come around like I've said before I'm not uh, I'm not giving up on it so and in the meantime I'm going to live my life and enjoy every damn minute of it Kent uh, no kidding well it's really interesting isn't it Oh my gosh! I mean, life is so interesting right now. I can't even believe it. I mean, I, for for me, on a number of different levels, I've got a I've got a fourteen month old son. That's one thing to talk about a psychedelic experience. That'll throw you out of your out of your uh, cultural uh, whatever for a while. <laughs> uh, but you know, I'm learning all about that, and at the same time, working hard and trying to be a good family man and father and all that. But at the same time, you know, I have Lots of interest, like you do, with uh, these incredible uh, things that we get to be a witness to and a participant of uh, through the web, primarily. Uh, you know, you and I have a very close relationship, and 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 uh, of course we've spent time together now. But but our relationship was born on the web, and uh, you know, uh, it's it's an amazing thing, and it is. Uh, uh, potentially there for everybody. It's not just for surfing porn, you know, and it's not just for going to ESPN or ABC.com. Well, we should go interview those dolphins. Well, I, let's. Uh, I'm not kidding. I really want to plan that. We need to talk about that off the air. We're going to go to Hawaii, and uh, we're going to meet Kent there, and we're going to hang out with Dr. Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland and a bunch of cool uh, swimming mammal friends of ours. And we'll do a radio show from there, Kent. <laughs> yeah, I called my friend uh, Noel, uh, who's a great fiddler in, in Lahaina, and told him, he said, yeah, do that. It's interesting, I asked him, what's going on? What's your reality over there? Well, he just turned 60. <laughs> what's going on over there? And he says, we got 50-foot waves coming in right now. And I said, that's it? He said, that's all it can. <laughs> there you go. All right, Kevin. Well, look, we are just about out of time. We're going to finish things up here with a little bit of music. And uh, thanks, as always. Uh, awesome uh, talking with you tonight. And uh, to all my listeners out there, say thanks. Uh, you've been listening to Kent Stedman from CyberspaceOrbit.com. And uh, anyway, what do you uh, just say goodbye or say give me some give me some parting wisdom, my friend? Uh, in an infinite universe, all dreams are true. There you go. In an infinite universe, all dreams are true. Kent, I'll talk to you soon, okay? Okay. All right. All right, you guys, uh, you've been listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. Carol Greenspan will be kicking in in just a few minutes. I'm going to finish things off here with a song called uh, uh, Farewell and Good Night. This is the Smashing Pumpkins on Radio Orbit, KOPN. Thanks for listening.
you and me